So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly bring it alive for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to this word, uh, let, let, let us learn from this great man, this Old Testament saint that you've given us in your word to use as a model to hear his words, but also to look at his life and to recognize that John the Baptist is the kind of man who stood for what was right. But as he stood for what was right, he also stood against what was wrong. And I pray that ultimately, Lord, we will will take that as a model for our own Christian life especially in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Somewhere in northern Africa, in Egypt, and long lost in antiquity, and probably moved. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages tended to move graves. But somewhere in that area, probably Alexandria, there was a tombstone And on that tombstone, three words were written, Athanasius Contra Mundum. Now, some of you already know what that means because you've been part of our church history study of Athanasius, but that's Latin, and it means Athanasius against the world. Now, Athanasius lived in the 4th century. That's when he did most of his work. He was a deacon about the time of the Nicene Council in 325 AD, which is, was a council where it began the discussions that would last for over a century of, well, who's Je- who is Jesus? And is he the true Son of God? And, and trying to find out what the nature of Christ was. Well, Athanasius, who later became the Bishop of Alexandria, which was one of the most important, if not the most important church in the world in those days. Um, He was the champion of the biblical doctrine of the divinity of Christ. Now, he was opposed by quite a few others, the most powerful of which was a man named Arius. And some of you know him. The Arians were in power off and on for centuries to follow. They have a modern-day equivalent in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Arius says Jesus was the greatest creature ever made by God, 
but he was still made. He was still a creature. He was not God incarnate in the flesh. Now, what made Athanasius so remarkable is that he never wavered from the truth. This is the truth of Scripture, and he stood for that truth. Now, as the political and the religious environment would waver back and forth, he would be exiled when the Arians came in power. Off to the desert, he had to go. And then when they got out of power, he came back. Athanasius was exiled no less than five times in his life. And it seemed like he was even nicknamed this while he was alive. It seemed like it was Athanasius against the world. And the reason I bring that up is because we're going to see that same tenacity, that same willingness to stand firm in John the Baptist. And we're going to learn a very important biblical truth over these next couple of weeks. And that is that if you stand for something, then by default you stand against something else. That if you stand for truth, if you stand for scripture, if you stand for the basics written uh, doctrines of the faith, then you are going to stand against error. You're going to stand against heresy. You're going to stand against half-truths and manipulation of what that truth is. And certainly we are going to see that in John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters... When I look around me at the, at the church today, and we're going to focus in on the church today, not the world, not the culture, but we're going to focus in what I call Christendom, modern Christendom, and I'll explain what that means later on. When I look at what the, is accepted as the reality, well, it, it's not what John the Baptist is showing us. It, it's not the truth that he is standing for. In fact, it looks more like the Pharisees and Sadducees that he's calling the, the spawn of Satan who come out. It's exactly opposite of what sometimes Scripture states. And what we're going to see is the degree to which that has snuck into even our own understanding, the way we worship, the way we interpret Scripture, the way we see God, the way we see Christ, and the very method or way that we see our own salvation coming about, all of it has been interpreted or, or twisted or actually corrupted by modern Christendom sometimes standing against the truth. Well, what we're going to end up with is that if you stand for the truth, you're going to find yourself standing against the world around you. Now, let me explain a little bit about this morning. Um, and you know, this happens quite often with me that uh, I bite off more than I can chew early on. I have to have my outline and everything. And by Friday and Saturday morning, I change everything. So that's what happened this week. And realizing that there's no way that I can cover everything that we have here in these passages. Because in this passage, we're going to see the humility of John the Baptist. We're going to see the truthfulness of John the Baptist. We're going to see the boldness of John the Baptist. And we're going to see the suffering of John the Baptist. So this morning, all we're going to deal with is just the first one of those. We're going to look at the humility of John the Baptist. And we're going to see how extraordinarily humble this man was. Now, 
where we are in this book of Luke as we make our way through it, and uh, let me just remind you uh, so, so that you have a reference. We're still in that transitional period between the nativity, which ended at the end of the second chapter, and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke is handling it exactly the same way that he handled the nativity. First to ground us in history, then to ground us in the Old Testament, and then to introduce Jesus by introducing the introducer, by talking first about John the Baptist. Now, we've already learned quite a bit about John the Baptist. We learned that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And how vitally important the idea of repentance is to his baptism. We're going to revisit that this morning. And then we've also learned that his function, if you will, was basically twofold. First, it was to introduce Jesus of Nazareth as the divine Messiah. Um, And secondly, it was to prepare the people's hearts for that Savior. And, and, And it was to prepare it in a certain way. In other words, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so he was preparing this group of people who, quite frankly, did not come out with the right kind of heart. They came out thinking, hey, we're the sons of Abraham. We are entitled to this kingdom you're talking about. We're here to claim it. And that's when John the Baptist looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. Meaning you, spawn of Satan, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then last week, we, we saw several groups that came up and said, well, wait a minute. How, what is the fruit of repentance? And if this is going to make the difference between heaven and hell with me, I want to know what the fruits of repentance are. And, and when John responded, he, he gave some examples, but they were just the tip of the iceberg. And what we established last week, and is going to be vital again for this week, that's that John was expressing an ethical standard. And we made a difference between ethics and morality. That ethics are the standard. Morality is the degree to which we abide by that standard. It's more like a measuring stick. And that's why someone can be absolutely, you know, a liar. But if, if that culture says lying is good, well, then they're moral people if they're good liars. Well... John came and he established the, the um, uh, ethical standard of heaven. And, and we boiled it down to two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. From cover to cover, the Bible tells us about the ethical standards of heaven. And John the Baptist says, basically, this is the standard and bearing fruit is according to that standard. Now, here's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. To stand for that standard is to stand against any other. There's no middle ground here, folks. There's no tolerance between the ethical standards of heaven and the ethical standards of this world. There is a a, a razor's edge. And if you stand for one, you're going to find yourself standing against the other. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing, standing for the ethical standards of heaven. And all of these people who are coming out thinking that they are so righteous to be baptized, well, he says, no, that righteousness is not going to save you. You need a savior, and that's the one I am here to introduce. And so we're going to learn uh, from this man. And, 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 and we're not only going to learn from his words, After all, 
thing. John the Baptist was like the last of the Old Testament prophets, okay? And one of the things we have done in our study of Luke so far is we have noticed what we can learn from the Messianic community. That's the community that produced the Christ child. And we've talked about the continuity between Old and New Testament. We've gone to Revelation 12 and that picture of the radiant woman who was the one who delivered the Christ child and then morphs into the Christian church afterwards. Well, that's the flow from the Messianic community into the Christian church. And so, therefore, we've learned much from the likes of Zechariah and Elizabeth, of Joseph and Mary, of Simeon and Anna. So now we're going to learn from John the Baptist, but not just his words. You see, remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew? He said this, he said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. Now, I'm sure Jesus wasn't including himself in that group. But we talked about that, and the reason that John the Baptist was so great was not because of his own merit. We're going to see it's because of his of his place in redemptive history. He's the herald of the Christ. He's introducing Jesus, who's the most important figure the world has ever known. Well, that that was John the Baptist's importance. But you don't get... It doesn't get said of you by the likes of Christ that you're the greatest man born of woman unless your actions match your principles. Unless the way you live matches the words you proclaim. And so we're not only going to look at the words of John the Baptist, we're also going to look at his attributes. And we're going to notice Christ-like attributes. And once again, we are going to see after we go through this text, we're going to step back and notice how opposite those same attributes are being displayed in modern Christendom, and I will explain what that means later on. But with that said, let's jump into the text. We're only going to deal with the 15th and 16th verses this morning. Um, so let's, uh, let's just concentrate on those two verses. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ... Now, this brings out something about John that is so often overlooked. We just read right past that, and we don't stop to think about what actually is being uh, relayed there. And and that is that great humility, which we're going to see in John. Great humility is not a humility that is never tested. It is not a humility that is never tempted. It is a humility that has overcome that temptation. The devil tempted Jesus and and wanted him to to find another way to be exalted other than going to the cross. Jesus didn't fall for it. When Peter said, no, you're not going to the cross, there's another way you can be exalted other than the humility of the cross, Jesus accused him of, of, of actually being harboring the work of Satan. And so therefore... True humility is tested, and that's what we're seeing here. The people were living in expectation 
of the Messiah coming. Now, I could spend about a month of Sundays and we could go back into the Old Testament. We could pull out all of the passages that were pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled that. But I just want to read one, and it's only part of one. We don't have time to go into it. It's a quite complex idea, but one that the Jews in this day were very well aware of, and that was Daniel's 70-week Prophecy. Many of you know about it because we studied Daniel. But let me read to you just very briefly from the ninth chapter of Daniel. It goes like this. So you, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now what that refers to is from the time that the decree is given for the exiles to leave Babylon and go back and rebuild Jerusalem. After the Babylonian uh, uh, exile, now Persia, um, that's when this begins. That's when the calculation time begins. Unfortunately, it's not clear. It could be several different dates that that occurred. But nonetheless, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Well, I'm not going to go into the various ways of calculating out those 69 weeks. They're not weeks of days, but weeks of years. And it depends, as I said, when you start calculating as to when you end up. And it also depends on which calendar you use. Whether you're using a calendar with 28 days or a calendar with 30 days, both of them were in use in those times. But Here's my point. Actually, one of the ways of calculating this nails it, literally nails it at the exact time that John the Baptist was standing in the Jordan River and Jesus walked up to him to be baptized, 27 AD. Now, regardless of whether that's the correct one or not, they all fell in this general period of time. So in other words... What Luke is telling us is that there was this huge expectation amongst the people for the Messiah. They were looking for him everywhere. And in in fact, there was almost a fever about the Messiah. And you can remember Jesus sort of hit the fact that he was the Messiah for a while because he didn't want to start, you know, an uproar because of that. But anyway, what Luke is saying is at this particular point in time, there was a massive expectation that the Messiah would be there. What a tragedy that is. What a tragic period of time. That all of these people were actively looking for the Messiah, but because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for, they rejected him and murdered him and missed their time of visitation. But in the midst of this, John the Baptist appears. There hasn't been a prophet in 400 years, and all of a sudden a prophet comes out of the desert. And Isaiah's prophecy and a dozen others come to light. And so the Jews sent out a a contention there to ask him who he was. Who are you? They said to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah, although Jesus said that he was symbolically. And then they said, are you the prophet that Moses talked about? The prophet like him that God would raise up? He says, no, I'm not the prophet. And then they asked him that all-important question. Are 
you the Christ? His response is given in John. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. But word spread far and wide that there was a prophet baptizing in the Jordan River and he could be the Messiah. John was an instant phenomenon. I mean, people were coming from all over, hundreds and thousands in a single day. And they were coming out, all of them, wanting to see if John was the Messiah. Now, let me tell you something. That's a temptation. That would be a temptation for any of us. You know, John might have said, well, you know, maybe I am the Messiah. Can all these people be wrong? You know, after all, I'm older than that Jesus, my relative, After all, my father is a priest, and we don't even know for sure who his father is. Maybe I am the Messiah. So, in other words, he's tempted. His humility that we're about to see in a moment, his abject humility before Christ, was not one that wasn't tested. It was tested by fire, to use the same metaphor that John is going to use. And so we see a true humility that is coming out of this. But there's one thing that I want to make sure that you see. I want you to see that this was a humility before Christ. It was his understanding of his relationship with the Christ that actually drove drove him to the humility he's going to express in brothers and sisters ought to do the same thing with us when we consider who Jesus is. So let's go on to the next verse and we'll see how this happens. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that he refers to the baptism, his baptism against Jesus' baptism, but he uses it sort of as bookends. There's half of it at the beginning, there's half of it at the end, and in the middle he speaks of abject humility. So let's read it. John answered them all. By the way, just stop there. Them all, okay? So this wasn't one time a bunch of people came out and said, are you the Messiah? This means daily, hundreds, if not thousands of people, daily, every day, day in, day out, are you the Messiah? Come on, we need you to be the Messiah. Let's go to Rome right now. I mean, let's go to Jerusalem right now and throw the Romans out. It wasn't something that just happened once. Every day. But he told them all, every single one of them who came to him thinking he was the Messiah. And he said, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the first thing that John talks about is his baptism again. And he makes a sharp comparison between his baptism and the baptism that Christ was going to bring. And he says, I baptize you with water. Okay? My baptism is entirely external. There's no efficacy in it. It is a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is a baptism to set your heart right. And so therefore, nothing happens in my baptism. You are not saved. You're not cleansed. Nothing actually occurs. It is a baptism to teach you that you need to prepare your heart for the Savior who is coming in order that you can be saved. Now, 
what he's saying by saying that my baptism is in water and his is in Holy Spirit and fire is he's saying that I and my baptism and everything to do with me is inferior to the one who comes after me. My baptism is inferior to the baptism of Christ because it's the baptism of Christ that's going to make all the difference in the world. And my baptism just points that direction. So therefore, so the first thing that he does, and we see the complete humility in the way that he approaches this, that my baptism is a baptism of repentance and it is external. It symbolizes something. But brothers and sisters, it's what it symbolizes that I believe we see the real humility of what John is saying. You remember how the Pharisees and Sadducees and Levites and priests and the crowds, according to Luke, were all coming out? And they were all coming out with this idea that we're the sons of Abraham. And so, therefore, we're entitled. Now, here you are out here. Here you are preaching about the kingdom to come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, we're God's people, so we're here to claim it. We're here to take that kingdom. And if the way you get it is initialized, is to be baptized by you, then that's what we're here to do. And that's when John says, you guys don't get it. That's not what my baptism is about. My baptism is a baptism of abject humility. Humble yourselves before God. Embrace your sin. Recognize that even though you are the sons of Abraham, you're still lost and you still need a savior and that what you deserve in this world and in this death is hell and that's all you deserve. And that's the reason that I baptize because your heart needs a change. You need to humble that heart. You need to bow the knee before Christ. That's what Jesus said when he started out his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the the kingdom of heaven because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, who recognize their sinfulness, who know that they're lost. Blessed are the meek because they understand that before God they're nothing and God has the power to send both body and soul into hell. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that they don't have it in and of themselves but know that they need a righteousness that is beyond them if they're ever going to stand in the presence of a holy God. That's the kind of baptism that John the Baptist is saying. You guys need to humble yourselves. You're arrogant. And arrogance is not going to fly in the kingdom of heaven. So his very statement that I baptize you with water is a, is, a, is a statement of tremendous humility, not just for him, but for everyone who comes out, everyone who approaches Jesus. You're not going to approach him on your own terms, folks. You're not going to say, Jesus, here I am. You know, what, what do you want me to do? I tried that when I was 17. He gave me 20 years of alcoholism to show me what I can do, show me what I'm capable of. And I learned my lesson the hard way. But in other words, John the Baptist is teaching a baptism of humiliation or humbleness. Then he goes on and he talks about the baptism of Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now when you talk about baptizing with the Holy Spirit, it's not a new concept. In fact, it's pretty much peppered all the way throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel put it this way. Talking about the great and powerful day of the Lord. I will put my spirit within you. 
and you shall live. Joel, of course, in his famous second chapter that Peter picked up and used at the Pentecost uh, sermon, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. Jesus even said it to his disciples. One of the last things that he said before he ascended in the first chapter of Acts. He says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus even explained in that same discourse what John is talking about. Because to a degree, to a degree, because John remembers a prophet. So he's prophesying of what's going to happen. Jesus said in the fifth verse of that first chapter, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So obviously, John, in one sense, is talking about the baptism that is going to occur at Pentecost. But brothers and sisters, once again, you need to stand for the clear teaching of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture is that you are saved through faith In Jesus Christ, you are saved by grace, and it has nothing to do with yourselves. An entire segment of Christianity, Pentecostalism, has come in and said, this isn't talking about the baptism when you're saved. This is talking about a second baptism, a baptism by the Holy Spirit. And many people don't know that the very foundations of Pentecostalism states, if you want to find out, go to their website and find their statement of faith. They say that you're not really a Christian until you are baptized the second time in the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues. That's error, brothers and sisters. That's wrong. But there are millions upon millions and millions of people who will fight you tooth and nail against that. So guess what? If you stand for the truth, you're going to stand against error. And if you stand against error, the error fights back. And you'll find yourself in controversy the very same way that John the Baptist is. Well, that's the idea of of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, the the time of justification, the time that God changes the heart, the time that the Holy Spirit regenerates that heart. I mean, Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would be there. He would enable, he would empower the church. He would um, bring to their remembrance all that he had told them and that he would bear witness and testimony of everything that Jesus had taught. Not a new doctrine, but a continuation of everything that Jesus taught. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And that's the baptism that he's talking about. What it means to be born again. What it means to be regenerated. What it means to be a new creation in Christ. The the soul is changed through the baptism of Jesus Christ. Not through the baptism of John. Christian baptism is just a, a celebration of the sign and the seal of the covenant that ends up in that regeneration. But then he goes on to to say that he will baptize you not just with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. Now, if you kind of sneak a peek at the next verse, 
you'll probably see that when John the Baptist talks about fire here, he's talking about eschatological judgment because that just flows into the, to the next verse that also has already been stated as part of this. But I think that if we just take this verse alone, which is what we're going to do this morning, if we just look at what this verse says, it, fa- it falls right in with this whole idea of humility and John truthfully stating what will be as a prophet. Because when you talk about fire in Scripture, fire is something that can and does destroy. But in Scripture, quite often, fire is referred to as a refining agent, something that burns away the imperfections, burns away the sins, if you will. The metaphor is that of a precious metal, like gold or silver, that you put the fire to. And, of course, it melts it, and all the imperfections, the dross, rise to the front. You just scoop that off the top, and then you have a purified metal. Well, that's what the baptism of Christ is going to do in one sense, to purify, to take the soul that was wrapped up in sinfulness and purify that soul, make it a new soul. Now, of course, it still lives in a sinful body, but that's a topic for another day. But he's, he's refining through that refiner's fire. But he is also, I think, talking about, as Jesus points out in the first chapter of Acts that I read you, he's also talking about Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, fire appeared. The tongues of fire appeared over the heads of the church that were there, speaking in the tongues of many nations, sharing the good news of the gospel. So that's the bookends, if you will, that John states about his baptism and Christ's baptism, making that very sharp distinction between the two. And basically, at the very end of it, it's just saying, my baptism is totally inferior, just as I am. And and that's what he says in the middle part of that. Going back to the 16th verse. Notice what he says. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, that's a familiar metaphor for most of us. But let me go ahead and just kind of flesh it out just so you make sure that, that, that you're on the same track. It's very similar to the metaphor that Jesus used in, J- in John 13 when he got up from the table of communion and he washed his disciples' feet. It, it, it's very closely associated with that. It's interesting, I think, to note that this metaphor is carried in all four Gospels. And whenever anything is carried almost verbatim in all four Gospels, you know that it is of great significance. So we want to make sure we see this. There is a little bit of difference between those. Matthew, for instance, says, Who sandals I am not worthy to carry. Mark goes a little bit more into detail when he says, The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. But basically, here's the image. In most houses in those days, they would have servants of one kind or another, depending on how wealthy you were, would depend on how many servants that you would have. And the people wore sandals for the most part as they walked around in the dusty streets when it was dry, so that would be most of the time, or the muddy streets when the rain was falling. Now, when we go to Haiti, I remind our teams, I usually tell them to wear closed-toed shoes, 
because you're sharing the dirt roads, not just with people, with lots of animals. And the dust that you're walking through is not just good, clean dirt. I'll let your imagination fill in the blanks of that one. But nonetheless, that's the way it was in Israel. They picked up all kinds of grit and grime while they're walking around. So when they would go inside, in order to not defile their homes, they would wash their feet, which was the job of the lowliest servant in the house, usually the child, the youngest child, of the least significant servant. It was the one job no one wanted. And so when someone would come into the house, whether it was the owners or a visitor, they would take off their sandals, they would unlatch them, and then wash their feet. It is a symbol, and it was to them, and it should be to us, of absolute humility. So John the Baptist, notice what he's saying. Notice what the man who is the greatest man born of woman. Now, by the way, remember the, the rest of that verse? He's, but even he is less than the less person in the kingdom of heaven. And, and so in that sense, we can say, well, in that sense, we're all greater than John the Baptist, but take the kingdom of heaven part away, and guess what? There's not a single one of us that can come close to the greatness of that man. And yet that man said, I am not worthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. That's the regard that I hold him in. I am flat on my face. I have no significance, no worth, no mightiness before Christ. It's all about him and not about me. Remember when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Everything John did pointed to the greatness of Christ. Now, there's one, one last thing that I want to bring to your attention before we start to kind of look at the, the, mo- the modern church. I want you to notice the personal pronouns in this verse. I want you to notice how John uses the I and the me and the mine. There's not the me and the mine here, just the I. And how he would use the he and the him and the his. In other words, three times he uses the first person personal uh, pronoun, I. And notice how he uses it. I baptize you with water, but he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's great, I'm inferior. Okay, so even though he uses a first person pronoun, he's talking, using it to to denigrate himself, to diminish himself before Christ. Same thing happens in the next one. He is mightier than I. He, pointing to him, everything that I'm going to do points away from the I and to him. Don't look at me, look at him. That's what his pronouns say. And then finally, who sandals I am not worthy to carry. I am not worthy to lift my face before the one who follows me. Every pronoun that John uses that that references himself points us to Jesus. And I'm afraid we're going to see exactly the opposite of the way that the pronouns are used in modern Christendom. Let me explain, first of all, what I mean by that. Modern Christendom. If you know your history, you know what Christendom was. 
Christendom was established in the 8th century AD by a great king known as Charlemagne or Charles the Great or Charles I who became the first Holy Roman Emperor. And what he did is establish an empire across all of France, southern France and Germany and Italy that incorporated the church. It was sort of a morphing or melding together of the church with government and politics and even the military because the seeds of the Crusades are being established by the creation of the Holy Roman Empire. And what they referred to, that sort of melding of the culture and the church, was Christendom, the kingdom of Christ on earth. So when I talk about modern Christendom, what I'm talking about is a melding of the culture and the church to the point that you can barely tell the difference between the two. The inclusion of the church in politics, governance, and governance, and even the military, and the inclusion of politics, military, and governance in the church, and the melding together of them. And, and, and what's dangerous about modern Christendom is it's not a place; it's an idea. It's an idea that um, uh, is like a mindset. It's a doctrine. It's It's a frame of mind. It's a frame of reference. It is something that works its way into us. On the lips of some, it's out and out heresy. On the lips of others, it is just an undercurrent. And what it does is it impacts or influences everything we think about as far as the scripture says about who God is, about who Jesus is, about our salvation, about the kingdom of heaven. It it works its way into that understanding, and when it works its way into that understanding, it brings things that are absolutely contrary to the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I'm just going to last for not only this morning, but for next week, probably more so next week than this morning. I'm not interested in bashing other churches, other people groups, other denominations. But the fact of the matter is this. If I stand for something, I'm going to stand against something else. Now, Paul put it this way when he was talking to the um, Corinthians. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, what he is saying is that there must be division within the church. I don't want division within the church. I want everyone to get along. I want unity within the church. But disunity is created when error is introduced into the doctrine of the church. And it is the responsibility of those who remain true to the truth and to the authority of Scripture that they, by standing for something, they stand against something else. And that's why this is, imp- is so important. Let's go back to what I was saying earlier. When I look around me and I look at Christendom, modern Christendom, there is a word that comes to mind. It's not humility. It's not righteousness. It's not compassion, even. It's arrogance. When I look at Christendom, I see the most extraordinarily arrogant 
group of people. We are, are an arrogant people, and, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's just the fact of the matter. This country and this Western civilization, we're arrogant. We think that we have the answer to everything. And unfortunately, that arrogance in Christendom, because Christendom is a melding of culture and the church, that just flows right into it. And all kinds of arrogant ideas begin to get introduced into the fundamental doctrines of the church. And all of a sudden, it is the exact opposite of what it ought to be. Let me give you some examples. And I can give you an example by going back to the pronouns that John the Baptist was using. Now, if I stand for a biblical definition of God, if I stand for the kind of God that the Bible tells us exists, remember God is unknowable unless he reveals to us. So the only thing we know about God is what he reveals to us in Scripture. And so therefore, if I stand for that, if I stand for a God who is loving, compassionate, merciful, and gracious, forgiving, I mean, all of those great attributes and infinitely so in each one of them. I am standing for the God of Scripture, but it doesn't stop there. If I stand for the God of Scripture, I stand for a God who is perfect in His holiness. And so therefore, He is wrathful at sinfulness that is brought before Him. I stand for a God who is perfect in His justness. And so therefore, when we sin against him, there must be some kind of payment for that sin. There has to be punishment or else he wouldn't be God. I stand for a God who is omniscient and knows all things and he knows my sins and he hates my sins. I I, I stand for a God who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, and whose eternal decree will be implemented in history. And you know what happens to me when I tell people these days that I stand for that kind of God? You know what they say? Well, that's not my God. You see, my God is different. My God doesn't get angry at me. My God would never send me to hell, folk, you know, for just forget it. My God is not that kind of God. You're turning God into a monster, and he would never do that. My God's not a monster. And so you you go worship your God, and I'll worship my God. As if your opinion of God made one whit of a difference. Because we don't define God. He defines us. Paul talked about that. Are we really, as the, the, the vase being made by the potter, going to define the potter and say what he is or what he is not? To go down the cafeteria line of the attributes of God and choose the ones we want and leave the rest? Brothers and sisters, that is the quintessence of arrogance to define who God is in any other way than how God defines himself. Same thing is true of Jesus. If I stand for the Jesus of Scripture, I stand for the most extraordinary love that any of us has ever seen. For Jesus to die for my sins when I rejected him for most of my life, threw it back in his face that I don't want it, For him knowing that I would hate him and stand in opposition to him and still suffer for those sins 2,000 years ago and literally spend an eternity in hell paying for those sins. Of course, he's a divine, eternal being, so he didn't have to do it for an eternity. But that's the most amazing love, compassion, mercy, grace. All of that typifies 
the Jesus of Scripture. But the Jesus of Scripture also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Jesus of Scripture also said, unless you hate your mother and father and sister and brother and follow me, unless you pick up your cross daily, lose your identity and follow me, you, you, you can't be my disciples. The, the Jesus of Scripture says, you must humble yourself Before God, the Jesus of Scripture said, count the cost before you become a disciple. The Jesus of Scripture says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, that's not what it sounds like, and it's not talking about the the, the sacrament of communion. What that's talking about is total and complete conviction, total assimilation of Christ into your being. The Christ of Scripture says that there will be a judgment and he will be the judge. And he says that when he returns with his angels, he will divide those who love him and have accepted him from those who have not. He says the sheep from the goats. And he says that the sheep will come and he will invite them into the, the glory of his presence for an eternity. But there will be so many people who think they know him. Who think that just like those Sadducees and Pharisees coming out from Jerusalem. Think that they are entitled to the kingdom. Who will come up and say, Jesus, didn't we do mighty things in your name? Didn't we feed the poor? And didn't we cast out demons? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know what I hear when I say and stand for that Jesus? Oh, that's not my Jesus. That's not the Jesus I worship. My Jesus is my friend. My Jesus wants me to be happy so he doesn't care if I live with my boyfriend. In fact, I remember seeing a placard in a gay pride parade one day. It was a picture. And one of the people in the parade was carrying a sign. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was something to the effect of Jesus was more like me than he is like you. Jesus loves me just as I am. Okay, that's my Jesus. Not your Jesus. My Jesus is different. My Jesus accepts me as I am, is totally and completely tolerant, and, and, and just you know, sort of winks at every one of my transgressions. After all, that's why he died on the cross, right? If you stand for the, the, the Jesus of Scripture, brothers and sisters, you're going to have to stand against that one because that's not Jesus. In fact, again, that's the, not just the essence of arrogance, that's idolatry because you created a Jesus according to your own design who really doesn't exist in reality. You're worshiping somebody else. Not all of the, uh, the abuses that we see are that obvious. I, I mean, when we talk about arrogance and the, the, you know, the modern Christian, it, it's pretty easy to see some just glaring examples. The TV pastors, they're up there, you know, claiming everything on earth, you know, that God has revealed everything to them. The celebrity pastor, and I'm not saying every celebrity pastor is like this, but a lot of celebrity pastors are just really, really good. They can turn a phrase, they're witty, they're clever, they have personal charisma, and they build huge megachurches. 
based on the wrong formulas of worship and the wrong formulas of who Jesus is. And then there are those self-proclaimed prophets and apostles who tell me that God has told them, given them a word for me, a word of faith. And once again, I say that's absolute arrogance. But those are easy to see. Some of the more subtle ones are kind of difficult to see. I'm told that I stand against most of evangelical Christianity because I stand for the biblical doctrines of election and predestination. I mean, just the New Testament is riddled with it. The Old Testament are riddled with it. I mean, everywhere you turn, there are statements of absolute God choosing us. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He said in the sixth chapter of John that unless... The Father who sent me calls you. No one can come to me unless he is called by my Father. I mean, there's just way too many statements of of that. And yet, people say to me all the time, well, well, no, it's not that because that makes God a monster. That means God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. So therefore, I reject that. And I am here because of my own free will. I am chose Jesus. Now, I know that when you say that, you're not thinking that that's arrogant. But it is. It is when you compare it to what Scripture says. I don't have time to go in and make an argument for or against election or predestination this morning. But but, But let me just put this for you to think about. If this is your idea and that offends you, and I'm sorry if it does. But I just want you to consider a scenario. I want you to consider you and a friend in a room by yourselves. Nobody else there. Both of you are lost. Both of you are, are, are dead in your trespasses and sins. Neither one of you know Christ. Both of you are at enmity with God. Both of you are completely and totally and terminally lost. And they pipe into that room the gospel. And you accept the gospel and you accept Jesus as your savior and, and, and you are eternally saved. Your friend rejects him and faces hell in a terminal, and terminal, complete, eternal damnation. Now, I want to ask you, if that's your own free will, what does that say to you about your relationship with your friend? Both of you heard the same gospel. Both of you started out lost. Both of you heard the same words. You accepted it. He rejected it. Does that make you clever? Does that make you wiser? Does that make you more spiritually discerning? What is it about you that that sent you to make that choice? You call it free will. I call it arrogance. Because there is nothing in any of us. Let's get it straight. We are here because of grace. Because God has gifted us by grace. None of us deserves to have ever accepted Jesus as Savior. That in and of itself is a grace. Again, you call it free will. I call it something different. Well, let me leave you with perhaps the most prolific. That's not the right word. Prevalent. The most prevalent example of our arrogance. And therefore, one of the most devastating And as your pastor, and I try to be as completely transparent as I can, I'm going to raise my hand and say, I am so guilty of this. 
as I know all of you are if you're honest with yourself. We are guilty of one of the most extraordinary arrogance. Arrogance is, is that a word? Examples of arrogance imaginable for those who have been saved and redeemed by a gracious and a merciful God. And that occurs, brothers and sisters, when we have the audacity to put God on trial. And yet we do it almost every day. God, how can you do that? How could you allow that to happen to me? How could you allow me to lose my loved one? How could you allow me to get sick like that? How could you allow some kind of an event in history? Are you blind to where you can't see anymore? Are you deaf to where you can't hear? Is your arm shortened so you don't have the ability to do that anymore? Didn't you hear me praying and I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and you didn't answer my prayer? The situation still exists. God, I'm angry at you. And if this keeps up, I'm just not going to believe in you. Brothers and sisters, that is far more prevalent in varying degrees within all of us. And it is arrogance. I'll never forget. I'll leave you with this. I'll never forget one of those panels that I saw. You know, those panels, and I know many of you have seen them either in person or on YouTube. I I think I've exhausted all the ones on YouTube. Um, And they hold them during the Ligonier conferences or the Shepherds Conference or some other conferences that they have where a a whole bunch of theologians are together and they're teaching on various things. And then they get a panel. And and, and they, they ask you questions. And the people in the audience write down the questions and they are given to that panel. And they're glorious because you get an opportunity I mean, some of those panels would have like R.C. Sproul in it, John MacArthur, uh, Ligon Duncan, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, Alastair Begg. Uh, I I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. All all these great um, theologians and great Christian men, and and you you get to hear, and not just men, but women too, and, and, and you get to hear some of the most amazing answers to the really difficult questions. But I'll never forget one, as long as I live. It's one of those questions that just broke your heart to hear the question itself. Because you could tell that the man who wrote the question was hurting so deeply. He just lost his child. Um, and, and I can't remember how, whether it was a tragic accident or whether it was through a, a sudden illness. But he was devastated. And, and just every word in that question that he was asking just dripped with the, the, the sentiment of sorrow. And, 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 and anyone who listened to it, including myself, I, I mean, you're just on the floor because you feel so bad for this poor man. He was hurting through and through. And I can't remember exactly what the question was, but it was something along the lines of, how do I reconcile this horrible tragedy with a loving and a good God? How do I keep from bitterness towards God? How, How do I not be angry to him? And then finally, how can I possibly forgive God for what he has done to me? And he had the misfortune of directing that to Dr. Sproul. And I can only tell you, I'll never forget the response as long as I live. The only way I can describe Dr. Sproul's response was ferocity. 
I'm sitting here waiting for, I mean, literally, I've almost got a pad and pencil out. I'm going to take this down because this happens to me all the time. People have some kind of tragedy and, they're, and, and they want to know how to deal with it. And I wanted to know how these great men of faith, these men of this wonderful hearts, how they're going to deal with that, re- with that reaction. And Dr. Sproul became purple in the face. And I can't even tell you the words that he said because they were so harsh, they bordered crassness. But basically what he told this grieving man was drop to your face and beg for forgiveness in sackcloth and ashes. That you would dare to talk about forgiving God. That you would dare to put him on trial. That you would dare to question his goodness. Because when you question the goodness of God, you have questioned his godness and made yourself a god. Repent. And ask for forgiveness. It offended me. Does it offend you? It ended the heck out of me. And he got a lot of pushback. But every single time somebody pushed back on him, he doubled down. And he said, you know something? You're looking at this from the wrong perspective. <laughs> That's arrogance to say, how can I forgive God? How can someone who deserves hell... Forgive God because he didn't answer your prayers the way that you asked them? How can someone who deserves eternal damnation and all that that carries with it actually say, I can't forgive God, I'm angry at God, I'm bitter at God? Well, if you are angry at him, if that offends you, my dear brothers and sisters, that is arrogance. And I can tell you it's arrogance because it offended me. And I'm telling you, I'm arrogant. The reason I'm arrogant is because I grew up in an arrogant culture and that it seeps its way into my Christianity. So let me leave you with this as far as the understanding of what humility is. And I hope that this hits home because it really hits home with me. Because we all have things to be upset about. We all have things that hurt us. But... Without question, you don't deserve God's love. You don't. You you don't deserve his compassion. You don't deserve his grace. You don't deserve his mercy. You don't deserve his redemption. You don't deserve his sanctification. And you certainly don't deserve heaven. There is only one thing that any of you, and me included, there's only one thing we deserve, and that's hell. Eternally. And if we get anything but hell, it's pure grace. Now let me tell you something. That's scriptural. If you stand for the truth, you're going to stand against Christendom and the culture. And as I have said before, Be ready, because the culture will fight back. Let's pray. Forgive us, dear Lord, because we know, if we're being honest with ourselves, and I I hope that everyone here is indeed being honest with themselves. I mean, yes, they may be offended. Yes, they may be angry. Yes, they don't like to think of themselves as arrogant. But when we start talking about questioning your perfect goodness, 
questioning your will, questioning the things that you do, questioning how you respond to us, then that's supreme arrogance of a creature expecting something from his or her creator. Forgive us for that, Lord. Teach us what true humility is. Teach us that it will be tested and that if we hold firm to what we know to be true about you and about Scripture, then not only will our humility pass the test, but we will be able to stand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.